represents a special day for a number of reasons. Of course, it's the last day of the year. That's, uh, that's a, a big thing as we look forward to 2024 and the new year and all that is to come. We also want to look back on and reflect and celebrate what God has done in the midst of our church. We got a glimpse of that in Aubrey's baptism this morning, that we have seen God move in a mighty way this year in, the, in our church, in the life of our church. One of the other things that we'll celebrate together uh, in the days and weeks to come is, is all that God has done in, in the financial stewardship and, and, and the resources. We met budget this year, which if you've been around church for a while, you know that that's something worth celebrating because churches plan and we pray and we ask. But not only did we meet our budget that we set, our plan for this year, but you have given so faithfully beyond that. For example, we've been talking for several weeks about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. We set a goal of $10,000 for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And before today, we were already sitting at yeah, just over $15,000 that we've given so far this year for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Another thing worth celebrating, we've been kind of, we've been in the works, we've been getting things ready in the last, uh, in, in, in the last several months, kind of looking toward perhaps some renovation work or other things, addressing just some, some long-term facility types of things. We had a vision night back in the late summer, early fall, and there's still a lot of work left to be done in that. But we've been talking about that if, if God enabled you and if God stirred your heart, that that was something that you could give toward as we are sort of laying the groundwork and, and working on plans. Just this month, just in the month of December alone, you as a congregation have given over $700,000 for our building fund uh, that, and, and all the things that are to come. And so these are just little ways that we celebrate God's faithfulness and we look back on what an incredible this year this has been, but we also look forward with great anticipation for what is to come in the coming weeks. Now, many of you know that we've been doing a Bible reading plan all year long. And another way that today is special is because today kind of represents the end of our Bible reading plan. Redemption story. We've been reading through the story of the Bible. And today we come to the end of things in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Oftentimes in the world of theology, we use kind of a, what sounds like a really uh, special or a technical term. We talk about eschatology. Maybe you've heard that before, eschatology. Well, what does eschatology mean? It means the study of last things. In the Greek language, much of the New Testament was written in Greek. That was the common language that, that many of the disciples, Jesus and the disciples, would have spoken in that day. And so in Greek, the word for the end or the last things is eschaton, and then the study of, right, you're used to ology, like bio, biology, zoology, and so forth. That's the study of. So the study of the end things is eschatology. And so as we talk about or think about eschatology, we talk about studying and, and thinking on, reflecting on end things. It's pointing us to the promises that are given to us in the scripture. Now, if you've read through the Bible with us, particularly this week, we've been reading in the book of Revelation. Revelation is the last book, but not only is it the last book, it is a book that's pointing to the last. It's the last book of the Bible, but it's also a Bible pointing to the last things or the end things, the, the, final, the, the final telling of, of history, at least on this side of 
the, the consummation and the fulfillment of Jesus' promises. Because the Bible promises that Jesus is coming again. Even as we read several weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read, as Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, that Jesus would return. Well, we've read in the book of Revelation about this vision that the disciple John has of the time when Jesus will come. And admittedly, a lot of it is, is symbolic. A lot of it is, is weird. A lot of it is, uh, is, is in, in so many ways, it's difficult to wade through and understand. And, and preachers and theologians have been working for, for centuries to study the book of Revelation. And this morning, we're going to focus particularly on the last couple of chapters and not the uh, study of the entire book. But no doubt, some of our understanding of the entire book of Revelation comes to bear in how we see these final few chapters. And let me just say, there are lots of points of view about the study of end things. There are lots of viewpoints. And the one thing that we, I think, have to hold with sort of an open hand is that a lot of this, because it is so steeped in symbolism, because it is so steeped in uh, in, in these images that were a part of John's vision, we have to admit and we have to acknowledge that we can't know with absolute certainty things that the Scripture doesn't tell us with absolute certainty, and yet we can lean into the things that we do know for certain. And throughout the book of Revelation, we have a lot of that. There, there are a lot of places where a certain vision happens, and then later we read about what that vision meant, or who the people in that particular part of the vision, or the images, the symbols in that part of the vision, what they were meant to represent. There are a number of cases where that layer of detail isn't included. And so we just want to be humble in the way that we study these things. We want to be humble in the way that we approach this. But we also want to stand ever true to this, this important promise that Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, he will come in judgment. It will be a time of victory and a time of great judgment when he will once and for all establish what the scriptures refer to as his his heavenly kingdom or the new heaven and the new earth that we're going to read about in just a moment in Revelation chapter 21. And so this morning, as we study this and as we dig into this, I'm going to use a word. I'm just going to use the word heaven. But let me just say that when I talk about heaven, and as I use the word heaven in our notes this morning, I'm, what I'm talking about is the things that are to come in the last of things, which maybe it would be more accurate to, eh, I don't know that it's more accurate or I would have used those words, but it might help you to think of it along this line of the heavenly kingdom or the new heaven and the new earth or or the, the final fulfillment of these things. In this sense, heaven, as we're referring to it this morning, is representative of the kingdom of God that will rule and reign forever. This new heaven, this new earth, it's the finish line. Now, before we dig into that anymore, let me just talk briefly uh, about finishing through the Bible reading plan. Because maybe you're, you haven't finished. Maybe you started reading through the Bible yet this year, and, and, and you haven't yet finished because you just got stopped. You got sidetracked somewhere along the way. I'm going to tell on myself this morning. I'm going to tell what may be one of my more embarrassing moments, but I'm going to tell this and, and let you laugh at me. But I'm doing this in, in a sense to, to maybe be an encouragement to you, okay? So many of you know that I ran uh, the Oklahoma City Marathon this past April. And, uh, and I say ran because of, you'll, you'll, you'll get why I say that with air quotes when I tell you the story in just a minute. So for about the first, oh, I don't know, 
14 miles of the race, I was doing great. I was humming along and I was doing great. But by about mile 14, I had made a fatal error in my final days of preparation that caught up with me. See, throughout most of my preparation, I just, I just, I ate and I drank and I did increase the number of calories that I was taking in, but I just kind of, I didn't, I didn't add to my regiment like a lot of water or a lot of other things. For whatever reason, I got it in my head as, as we drew near that if I didn't consume a lot of water just before the race, that I was going to cramp in those final miles. Because in all of my training, the most miles I had run in any of the training runs was 22. And a marathon, if you know, is 26.2. So I still had four miles to go beyond anything that I had ever run before in my preparation. And I was so worried that I was going to cramp in that home stretch, those final four miles. So in the days before, even just the day before the race, I drank a lot of water. And I say a lot, like I mean more than 100 ounces of water, which some of you may do that every day. I don't, okay? I drink a lot of coffee. There's water in coffee, right? Uh, But probably an average day for me is maybe somewhere around 32 ounces of water. So I had greatly increased my water consumption. And what happened, I'm going to spare you the ugly details, but what happened is at about mile 14, it caught up to me. And I stopped, we'll just say it this way, I stopped at every porta potty and the last <laughs> 12 miles or so of the race that day, uh, and, and it was necessary, okay? We'll just leave it at that. That was dumb. I shouldn't have done that. It really slowed me down in my time. But you know what? When I got to the end of it all, Hey, I ran a marathon, right? I mean, so I say that because maybe you started with a head full of steam this year with the Bible reading plan, and maybe you came out of the gate and you were doing great, and somewhere along the way, things kind of faded, and maybe you've gotten gotten off track, or you've gotten sidetracked, or you've gotten derailed. Can I say to you, hey, it's okay. The goal in all of this is to engage with the Scriptures. The goal in all of this is to learn from the Lord. I want to encourage you, read the Bible. And if you got sidetracked and you didn't finish, that's okay. If you missed days at a time and weeks at a time and you had to really work hard to catch up and claw and scrape to get back on track, or maybe you're still working at that now, can I just say, hey, it's okay, right? Just keep going, keep going, keep reading, keep pursuing the Lord because you will find that if you will study his word, God will speak to you and he will move in your heart in a powerful way. And at the end of it all, that's the goal is to read the scripture to study the scriptures so that we would engage with what God has for us, his word for us, knowing him through knowing his word, obeying him by doing what he's told us to do in the scripture. That's the whole point of it all. And yeah, it may not be, it may not be perfect. You may not have read every day at the same time and checked every box and gone all the way through. But if at the end of it all, if you've engaged with the Lord, then you've drawn closer to him. And that's the point. And so as we get to the end, in Revelation 21 and 22, I want to read a few verses, and I'm going to point to several things that these verses teach us about the last things, the promised things, the things that are to come at the end of it all, the heavenly kingdom of God that we're going to read about. So let's jump in and read about that together in Revelation chapter 21. We're going to read the first seven verses together in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. What an amazing, what a beautiful picture this is of the things that are to come. And what I want us to understand together this morning is that this, this image, this vision, this promise of things to come is not meant to be just a, a, a myth or a fairy tale or even just allegorical. These are promises of things that will come. Now, yes, we have to see them through the lens of how we study and we read apocalyptic literature. Again, those are some some very technical theological terms that have to do with the kind of writing that the book of Revelation is. And so, yes, we study it through that lens. Yes, we see it in that way as we understand about this type of writing and this type of, this type of scripture. And yet, even in all of that, the point is that it's, it's helping us to see that ultimately, someday, that, the, that Jesus is coming again, and when he comes again in judgment, he will deal finally once and for all with sin. In the previous chapters, we've just read about a great lake of fire, and that the enemy will be cast into the lake of fire. We've read about the marriage supper of the Lamb. We've read about these great moments and these great events and these things, but it's all pointing us to this fact that when the Lord comes, he will, he will finish he will finish once and for all with the pain, the brokenness of sin and suffering. And he will establish what is referred to here as a new heaven, a new earth. Or as we're going to refer to it, just this heaven, this promise of the dwelling place of God that comes to us. This final dwelling place is we are united together with God forever. And in these chapters, we're not going to read every word of Revelation 21 and 22 together this morning, but I would encourage you to read them. And in these chapters, we see this beautiful picture of God keeping his word. The Bible begins in the story of Genesis chapter 1 in a garden, and it ends in a city. But when we get a glimpse inside of that city, we see that even inside of the city, it's described as being like a garden. And so we see this final consummation of things where God finishes with this, this, this perfectly restored world, this new heaven, this new earth. And, and so as we, as we understand this, I want to draw to five key understandings that we can look at in the book of Revelation, particularly in Revelation 21 and 22, that are meant to inform what we know about the Lord, but also meant to give us hope for the future. Okay, so the first one is this. Heaven will be a place of restoration. It will be a place of restoration. And we read even in Revelation 21 verse 1 about a new heaven and a new earth. And if you skip down to verse 5, we read these words. Behold, I am making all things new. 
Jesus proclaims here, the Lord proclaims here, that he's making all things new, right? This, uh, th- this, this word of God that is given to John is that the Lord is saying, I, I'm making all things new. Well, in that, what we find is that this new heaven, this new earth that are portrayed here are a, a restored version of what the Lord had created. We read, in, again, in Genesis, we read weeks and weeks ago, 52 weeks ago, as a matter of fact, we read about the creation of things and the fall that took place and how sin entered into the picture. And this is, this is pointing us to the moment when sin is dealt with finally, perfectly, in the presence of God who has, who has taken away sin, who has judged the lawless ones and now is giving this eternal promise to his children, those who have trusted him. It's a place of restoration, a place where things are new. Secondly, we see that heaven will be a place of realization, a place of realization. I've told you before, I heard someone say, that when we get to heaven, every one of us, when we, when we are reunited together with the Lord, the first words out of our mouth will be, aha. Because finally, in that moment, we will understand everything that we don't understand now. And we will see all that which we cannot see now. And, and all, the, all the pains of this life and all of the trouble and the, and the hardship that we've endured and all the things that we just wish, why is this happening? Why am I going through this? Why have I had to endure this? What is this doing? God, what are you doing in my life? What are you doing in my circumstance? We will understand then what we don't understand now. It'll be a place of realization. And not only in the sense of uh, knowledge, not only in the sense of the knowledge that we gain or the understanding, but in, the, in as much as we fully realize what we were created for. The picture that is painted here is of a perfect place, a brilliant place, a majestic place. But what's so great about heaven is not all of its adornment. It's that at the very heart of heaven itself is Jesus, the one. There's no need for a sun because the Son of God shines brightly. There's no need for for, for. Uh, food and these things. There's no more sorrow and no more, all of those things. Everything is made right in that place because of Jesus. We will fully realize, even if you were to jump over to chapter 22 and look at verse 1, the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Do you you see the, the images there, the connection with the garden from the beginning? It's a realization of what God created us for that was lost in the fall, but these things are made new in heaven, in this heavenly kingdom of God. I would recommend to you a really, a really good book by an author named Randy Alcorn, and the name of the book is just Heaven. Now, I, I'm not going to tell you that I would agree with everything that Randy Alcorn writes in the book Heaven, but it's a really good book that kind of peels back the curtain, so to speak, and studies the Scripture and what the Bible teaches us about Heaven. And one of the things I really came to appreciate and understand through reading that book was that in so many ways, Heaven is not just 
the, uh, the, the, the city with the streets of gold that we think of. That's really more reflective of the new Jerusalem, the capital of this new heaven. But in so many ways, heaven, this dwelling place, this eternal dwelling place that God has created for us, is a, a restored, a fully realized version of what we were created for in the beginning. It will be a place of realization as we realize all that God has for us and we live in the fulfillment of that promise. Third, we see that heaven will be a place of reunion. In chapter 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place. That's such an important word there. The dwelling place is the tabernacle. It's the tabernacle. It's the place where God and and man meet together, where we dwell together. So in the Old Testament, as we read through the Old Testament, we read about the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent. It was the place of worship where where the nation of Israel would would offer their sacrifices in in the time of the Exodus. The tabernacle was the place where the Holy of Holies existed, where the, the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was the place where they would meet together with God, and it was symbolic. It was literal in a sense that this literally was the place where they would go to offer their worship and their sacrifice and those things, but it was also reflective of the fact that God came to dwell with them, that his presence would dwell with them. That same word, tabernacle, is, is endemic of what we see in the scripture in John chapter 1, for example, where we read that Jesus came to the earth and he made his place among us. He dwelled among us. He literally tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. John 1, 14, and we beheld his glory. And so we, we have had a glimpse of that in Jesus, but now what we see in this heaven, this heavenly kingdom, this new heaven and new earth, is the, the realization of that, that the dwelling place of God is with man, that God has chosen to dwell with us, that we get to be with him, and not only us, but all those who have believed in him and trusted in him, who have gone on before us. This morning when I baptized Aubrey, I said to her that I get to baptize you as my sister in Christ, and each and every person that we baptize, we refer to them in that sense, using that, that language of kinship, that we are brothers and sisters together. We are heirs and co-heirs together with Christ, that we are the family of God. And what we are united by is our faith in Jesus. And as the family of God, we get to dwell with him. I'm so excited about getting to heaven someday and being reunited with loved ones who have gone on before. I can think even in my own family of my grandparents, who were all people who loved the Lord and, and walked with Him. I think of, uh, of other close family, our mother-in-law that, uh, that we lost this past year, and many other loved ones who have gone on before. And heaven will be a place that we will be reunited with those loved ones who have trusted the Lord. But not only that, the most important reunion of all is that we get to be with Jesus forever in His presence. What a glorious promise that is to us. Fourth, we see that heaven will be a place of rejoicing. It will be a place of rejoicing. All throughout the book of Revelation, we see this language of worship, this hallowed, sacred language of worship. We read it here in Revelation 21 and 22 as as this vision is unfolded and, and there is worship, there is glorification, there is this language of exaltation. 
In particular, I, I think about in chapter 22, verse 8, John writes this, right? That I'm the one who, heard, who saw these things, John writes, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. John's natural inclination in light of all that he has seen is one of worship. Because when we truly understand the greatness, the majesty, the, the, the unmatched awesomeness of God, the only appropriate response is worship. This is a place of worship, a place of rejoicing, a, a, a place of, of exalting the name of Jesus, which is exactly what we read in Philippians chapter 2 that would happen, that at the name of Jesus Every knee would bow, every tongue confess on heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will happen in this final moment, in these final things, that we will rejoice in the one who has saved us, who has fulfilled his promise to us, the one who makes all things new. Finally, what we read here is that heaven will be a place of redemption. A place of redemption. All year long, as we've been reading through the Bible, we have seen that the 66 books tell one story, and it's a story of redemption that reaches its completion here in these final moments, in these final chapters. In chapter 21, verse 6, we read, it is done. It is done. You can Skip forward to chapter 22. In chapter 22, we read that even in, look at verse 16, for example. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and the morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price the point of all of this is that Jesus is saying, come, come to me, you who are thirsty. Come to me, you who are weary. Come to me with all that you have. Come and find redemption in my promise. Heaven will be a place of redemption. But as glorious as heaven is, and don't miss this, because we, we do, we celebrate, we bless God that this is the promise made for those of us who have trusted Jesus this place of restoration, this place of realization, this place of reunion, rejoicing, redemption, that we will dwell in forever and ever, for all eternity to come. But this is promised only to those who've trusted in Jesus, only to those who know him. In chapter 21, verse 8, we read these words, and this is sobering. This is sobering. We read this, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And you may read that and you may think, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not cowardly or faithless, detestable. Now listen, the point of all of those descriptors, the point of that language, is that this is pointing to all of those who don't know Jesus. And we'd have to go back and read the, the, the book of Revelation together. We'd have to, and, and time won't allow us to do, but I would encourage you to do that. If you, are, if you are at the place where you're exploring faith and you're exploring truth and you're 
you're, you're asking yourself honestly and earnestly. I think that we should understand that this is essentially pointing to anyone who is outside the family, anyone who stands outside, and that's everyone who has never confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life. And that's a sobering thought for us to consider, that as great as these promises are, and as wonderful as this this dwelling place of God with man will be, it is exclusively given to those who have trusted Jesus by faith. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, the Bible told us in the book of Romans. Everyone who trusts in Jesus is saved, ultimately. Praise God. But the sad truth is, everyone who stiffens their neck, and that's the language that's often used in the, in the Bible, everyone who stiffens their neck, everyone who hardens their heart, everyone who refuses to submit to Jesus as Lord will be on the outside, according to Revelation 21.8. And their dwelling place will be this lake of fire and sulfur. My prayer is that you would be a, uh, one of the, 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 the family of God, one of my brothers or sisters, one of those who, who are in that family through faith in Jesus. My prayer is that you would know for certain that you've trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin and you've confessed him as your Lord and Savior so that this promise might be true for you, that you would be there, that we would be reunited together in the presence of Jesus forever. Whether that is to come in a matter of our lifetime or eons from now, it will happen. It will come true. It's a promise of God. And we hold fast to his promise, believing that all those who've trusted in Jesus by faith will get to experience the fulfillment of these promises given to us But also, sadly, everyone who denies him through their hardness of heart, through their refusal to submit to his lordship, will be given the the second death as it's described in Revelation 21.8. That eternal punishment in a place of fire. And so this is something sobering for us to consider. And in a moment, we're going to move into a time of response. And our response today is meant to be a time of genuine worship. That as we have read together about these promises, as we understand these promises to be true, that our response would be similar to John's response in Revelation 22, that we would worship the Lord. That we would say, God, you are great. God, you are able to bring all these things to completion and fulfillment just as you've promised. But even as we sing this song, if there's never been a moment that you have surrendered your heart and your life to Jesus, then I would encourage you today that you would make this the moment. So as we sing, our staff will be standing here at the front, and we would love nothing more than to pray with you and celebrate with you as you surrender your life to Jesus, as you submit to his lordship, so that you might receive by faith the fulfillment of these promises given to those who have trusted in him. Would you bow your head with me as we enter into a moment of of prayer, preparing our hearts for God to, to move in our midst? as we look to him and respond to his truth now. Lord, we are grateful that you have given us these promises and you've given these promises that we might might know you and that we might experience your goodness not only here and now, but for all of eternity. 
Lord, we understand that this is a, an exclusive promise, that it's offered freely to everyone, but it's only ultimately true for those who surrender to you. And so our desire is to see you move. God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, this might be the moment when they come to that place of uh, surrender, that moment of, of submission, that they would truly confess you as their Lord and Savior and receive by faith this promise given to those who trust you, who surrender their lives to you. Lord, we look forward with great anticipation for that day and, and your coming. And we pray that in the meantime, in the days between now and then, you would work through us. Give us the sense of urgency to share this message, this gospel of Jesus with those who don't believe. That, that everyone that we know may be in heaven with us someday. All this we pray in your name.